title of today's message is going to be What God Has Joined. And if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 and starting in verse 1. And this is actual an addition that I wasn't planning on, but God put it on my heart. And it is addition to our God behaving badly question mark series. And what, what that series is about, in case you've forgotten, is addressing the parts of the Bible that the culture of today would look at and say, you know, the God of the Bible is kind of weird, he's kind of strict, he's kind of harsh, you know, because he puts all these rules down. And we want to, in this series, bring truth to a lot of what um, the, the criticism of the Bible is or the criticism of Christianity. We want to explain a little bit how you can answer these questions and answer these, these things that people put forth. And especially with the last Supreme Court decision last Friday that, that sent the entire Christian wor world into a tizzy a little bit. And I want to bring just a little bit more perspective about that today and a little bit more and give you a few more tools to be able to answer questions about this. Last week we had a solemn assembly where I said that um, judgment begins at the house of God. The Bible says that. And when we start talking about how we interact with the world and how we uh, talk and, and answer questions about our faith, we have a tendency to, to point to the things of the world and, and use worldly tactics to, to go against the, the things that are coming back down at us. And over the last week, I've come to a few realizations. And one of them is going to be a little bit maybe shaking of what you've believed up until this point. But as I was really thinking about history, as I was really thinking about this issue, I came to a few realizations. And the first one is, we have always said that America is a Christian nation. That really isn't true. We were not formed as a Christian nation. We were formed as a nation by Christians. And I know that that's a little bit shaking to what we've always said. I mean, the church has always said, and I think it's been kind of prideful a little bit, that we said, well, this is a Christian nation. Well, I don't think Christ has ever been the president of the United States. I don't think he's ever been the Speaker of the House. He's never been the president pro tem of the Senate. He's never been the Secretary of State, as far as I knew. I look back in history, and I didn't see Jesus anywhere in there. So to say that we are a Christian nation is, I think, a little bit of a fallacy. But I think we are a nation that was, up until recently, filled with Christians. And Christians who, who held up the Bible and said that this is God's truth. That is true, but I don't think you can always say that, Chris, that America has always acted in a Christian manner. I, mean, I, I work in Black River Falls, and I work amongst uh, people called the Ho-Chunk. And I see what America has done to the American Indian tribes. And I don't think that was very Christ-like what we did. So trying to say that America is a Christian nation and then equating that to how we treated them, that kind of makes Jesus look a little bad, wouldn't it? To say that America was a Christian nation when we enslaved 500,000 people in Africa and brought them over here as slaves, that wouldn't make Christ look very good either. And that was done under religious auspices often by people twisting the scriptures for their own purposes. 
Sometimes our foreign policy does not reflect the nature of the heart of Jesus either. When we have gone, we've gone to war to save money on a gallon of gas, essentially. We, we cloak it in righteousness. We say it's to stop aggression and everything. But at the bottom line was business wanted to make sure we save, save money on gas. So we went out and fought wars over this kind of things. I'm not necessarily talking about Afghanistan or Iraq, but in the past, we've sent troops to protect our oil supply. And many times, the actions of this nation have been counter to the clear teaching of Christ and his word. Now, it sounds kind of funny for me to be sitting here on July 5th, right after we celebrate our independence, sound like I'm bashing America. I'm not. I love our country. I love its people. I love its culture. In 1988, I swore an oath to give my life to the defense of this country, to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I still consider myself an oath keeper. I, still cons I don't consider that in 2001, when I had my end of time in service, that that oath was completed. I still consider that oath to be in effect today. I would still die to defend this country and defend its people and all of you if, that, if it came to that. And with all of our current problems, and some of our problems are huge. I'm not, I'm not trying to deny that at all. But I say this in all honesty. There's no other place on earth I'd rather live than right here in the, United States of, in the United States of America, in the state of Wisconsin, and God willing, in the state of Whitehall. I could retire here if it's his will. Or the, yeah, it's going to get so big it's going to be a state. Yes. <laughs> city of Whitehall. So I just want to say, in preface to what we're going to get into here, happy birthday, America. May God continue to shed his grace and favor upon thee. And most of all, forgive us of our shortcomings and guide this nation back to a deep respect and an awe of God's love and his greatness. Amen. Amen. Watching the news, I've, read, I've watched a lot of news, I've read a lot of articles, I've had, not really had social media arguments, but I've watched a lot of social media arguments over the last week. I see three primary points being made against Christians who support the idea of biblical marriage as God has prescribed it. The first one is, is that God loves everybody. God loves us. Look, you know, you guys keep can't keep putting all these rules on us. You guys, we know that God's going to love us and God's going to let us into heaven anyway. You know, God, God is love, and if God is love, then I can do whatever I want and he's going to let me into heaven anyway. Well, I would just simply ask you back, if God is a God of love, would he not also have to be a God of justice? Justice and love are tied intricately together. When my children were growing up, if... Haley would go and punch Cassie, and Cassie came and cried to me and said, Haley's punching me, and I would just say, and I would just say, oh, honey, you know, I love Haley too much to punish her. How would that look to Cassie? Cassie wants justice, doesn't she? She wants Dad to go and spank Haley. Yeah, I mean, she wants justice because children, if anything, have a better sense of justice than most adults because we've allowed ourselves to think ourselves out of just very basic things in life sometimes. The second thing that's being put out is judge not, Christian. Bible says don't judge. Judge not lest ye be judged. 
Well, the people who say that don't even read the rest of the context that that's being put into. The judge not comment in the Bible is put into the context of the measure that you put on somebody else is the same measure that will be put on to you. So be very slow before you put judgment upon that. And when somebody said that to me yesterday at the hospital, they said, oh, you know, you're a Christian. Judge not. Judge not. Lest you be judged. They, I mean, they're almost just like that. Judge not. Lest you be judged. I said, twist not the scriptures, lest you be like Satan. <laughs> and... If you take anything out of it, you can make you can make any you can make Romeo and Juliet and make and say and take it out of its context and say it's a treatise saying that teens should commit suicide because they broke up with their boyfriend. If you take it out of its immediate context, if you rest things out of its immediate context, and just like that, people can take the Bible and make it say whatever they want if they take rest it out of its immediate context, not taking into account exegesis like we uh, talked about a few weeks ago, taking the scripture as a whole into its immediate context, its culture application and everything else. One of the biggest things that people will say is that Jesus never addressed homosexuality. So since he didn't say anything about it, it must be okay. Well, that's a little bit that's a little bit intellectually dishonest when you think about it. Yes, did Jesus say, thou shalt not be homosexual? No, he did not. That is true. But Jesus did have several things to say about marriage. He did have several things to say about sexuality. He did have several things to say about marriage. And in doing that, he established God's plan for the family and what a born-again child of God is supposed to be like. The argument that since Jesus didn't directly address homosexuality, it doesn't matter, is actually very fallacious because Jesus simply established the truth of the matter. He simply put out the principle, and he didn't go into every possible way you can deviate from the truth. Now, you will notice that people will use this argument, and they call themselves red-letter people, that the only parts of the Bible I have to follow are the stuff, is the stuff in red letters that Jesus specifically said. Well, it's interesting that we don't use that argument for anything else, that we don't use the argument that since Jesus didn't specifically say this, then, you know, it doesn't matter. Or he didn't specifically address that. Because we don't look at a person who shoplifts and said, well, Jesus didn't speak about shoplifting, so stealing must, so it must not be okay, because it's not really stealing, it's just... You know, it's just petty theft. It's not major theft. It's not like I stole a car or somebody's computer. We don't say that, well, you know, since Jesus didn't specifically address manslaughter, that it's okay to kind of accidentally kill people or drive drunk or, or do any of these things because we're not murder. It's not premeditated murder. I mean, what the Bible addresses is killing and mur is premeditated murder. So since Jesus didn't specifically address this, then we then it's, it's okay to commit manslaughter, accidentally kill people. We don't say that telling white lies is okay because Jesus didn't specifically talk about white lies. He just talked about big lies, like testifying against somebody in a court. But it's okay just for a white lie. Jesus didn't talk about that. That's the same argument, isn't it? We, they'll, they'll try to use this line of reasoning when it comes to this and what Jesus said about marriage and sex. And if you're into politics, um, it's a, the study of how to debate people. 
It's called a straw man argument. It's where you pick up, it's where you create this thing over here, an argument over here that's apart from this, and you try to link the two together to defeat this argument over here. It's called a straw man. And that's what they're doing, is trying to make it about something else other than that initial issue. So I want us to take a look at what Jesus did say about marriage and the family. And I want to be very clear this morning, and I want to have a pastoral heart for you. I want to preface this with saying that in a crowd, it's common that there will be people who have gone through all kinds of marital difficulties, or you may be going through marital difficulties now, up to and including divorce. I know that. And I want to say that this is not a message that is, is geared to you. I'm not pointing a finger. Tammy and I have had our issues in our marriage. So trust me, I know that, that people have issues out there, whether it's here in this room or listening by podcast. I don't want you to feel condemned by what I'm going to say. But what I do want is for you to be educated in what Jesus' heart really is for you because he has the best plan for your life if we would just follow what he says and stay within the boundaries of what he has created. So let's look to see what Jesus has to say about marriage. In Matthew, or Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, the, peop, the crowds of people came to him, as was his customs, and he taught, him, taught them. Some Pharisees, religious leaders of his time, some Pharisees came and tested him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what did Moses command you, Jesus replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. And listen to what he says here. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask for just a special measure of your grace this morning. Because this is a very contentious topic. It, it speaks to our ideas of fairness. It speaks to how we interact with our culture today. And it may even speak to things that we have gone through ourselves. So Lord, I ask for your presence to be with us this morning. Especially with me who is going to be speaking. That I would speak the right words. And I ask, Father, that you tend the soil of everybody's heart here, that they will receive the word of God and hear your heart for our people. I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, the big idea today is that Jesus simply confirms here in Mark what God has already ordained at the beginning of creation. And that is Christian, or we can also say biblical, marriage. Now we can define marriage as Jesus did, referring back to God's original created order and his plan for a man and a woman. 
Now, in Genesis chapter 2, he, it talks a little bit about how he created Adam. God gives kind of the, the big picture in Genesis chapter 1, and in Genesis chapter 2, he focuses in a little bit more. He makes Adam out of the dust of the ground. He breathes within him the breath of life. He, he places Adam as more or less a king over this planet that is going to steward the planet. He's going to take care of the planet. And he has all kinds of animals come before Adam, and Adam names every single one of the animals. I think that would be kind of a cool thing. It's like, that's an elephant, that's a rhino, that's an alligator. You know, and, and he just kept making up names for him. And God kept bringing in and saying, hey, Adam, how about this one to be your helper? No, I'm not into that hippo, God. I, I just, I, I don't see it. You know, or, you know, a vulture flies down and he goes, I don't know, God. And then kissing that thing would give me bloody lips. I don't know. Uh, you know, dogs come by, orangutan comes by. Oh, look at that. At least that one walks kind of upright, Adam. Uh, the hair thing, you know. That, that's just going to turn me off a little bit, God. So it says in, the, in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 20, it said, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So tw verse 21, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of a man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, now this, this God is bone of my bones, and this is flesh of my flesh. And she will be called woman. He named woman out of man. He names woman, for she was taken out of a man. And for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, I want to take a few points from this scripture that really define God's intent for marriage for us. And the first thing I want to bring up is the idea of one flesh. This is something that gets really, really confused with today's marital ethics, or lack thereof, in the world. The idea of one flesh is that one flesh is to be complementary, that the two sexes and the two people coming together are there to complete one another. They are not in competition. They are not two individuals coming together to try to live together. They are two individuals that are coming as individuals and coming together as one. And this is to form a basis for both sexes to be represented in the family, and most importantly, modeled to the children that they will eventually have. I grew up in a, in a very broken home. My parents split up when I was five, and I went back and forth between mom and dad, and just a whole lot of drama I don't want to bring up this morning. But I, I had very skewed ideas of manhood because my father wasn't living up to being a godly man. I had very skewed version of womanhood because my father wasn't living in such, or my mother wasn't living in such a way that honored God. So it messed me up for a very long time. You see, when, when God brings a family together and, and the mother and, and father are together, they model God before their children. And it's because they show two different sides. You see, men and boys... We need a woman's gentleness. We need that to temper our more base instincts. 
Men are just kind of, you know, at the core, we're all Tim Taylor. We're all kind of grunting apes kind of running around that need a woman to civilize us a little bit. It's just kind of the way God made us, kind of. You know, we, we need that kind of that gentler influence. And you'll see a lot of guys who grow up without moms, they're the more very boisterous, bullying kind of people because they have um, either allowed their manhood to get out of control because they don't have a mom or they have a dad who's the same way and they just reflect what, they, what their dad is without having a woman around. And girls, you need to see a man's strength. And it's not just the strength that opens up your ketchup bottles. It's a strength that we see um, an emotional strength. Somebody, somebody that you can cling to, somebody that you can trust, somebody that you can hold on to. You need that because when God took that rib out of man, he just kind of separated that soul. And that soul is never really totally made complete again until they're within a marriage relationship. There's also the idea of nakedness. That is why it says in his Bible that you are to leave your mother and father and cleave onto your wife, says that in the King James Version. And this idea that is expressed here is not like we see in the pictures of Adam and Eve where it just shows their physical nakedness, where they put a tree branch across the private parts so you don't see them. Everybody focuses on physical nakedness when they're looking at this, but that's not really what the Hebrew word there means. I mean, it can mean physical nakedness, but it talks about more as an unveiling. And what God is saying here is it's almost a pulling back of a curtain where, where you can be totally and completely honest with a person where you can have what is called a soulmate. You know, our world talks about soulmates, don't they? They talk, oh, that person's my soulmate. And that person over there, he was my soulmate for a while. And that person over here, he was my soulmate for a while. No, they weren't. Because if you could be that open and honest with a person, you'd never want to leave them. And if they were really your soulmate, they would feel that same way about you, and they would never want to leave you. Again, I'm not being condemnatory for anybody who has marriage issues. I'm just ta telling you what God's created design is. If you, you have that one companion with you in life, you can be totally open and honest with them. And you can receive it. Just like God wants us to be open and honest with him, and we want him to be open and honest with us. That is why throughout scripture, marriage is always a type of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. And if you have that kind of partner, if you have that soulmate in life where you have put aside your life and they have put aside their life and they come together and you have become one flesh, they will be the person in life that will lift you up when you're down. They will be the person in life that will get in front of all that stuff that life's been throwing at you and, and protect you. They're going to be your biggest cheerleader. But they're also going to be that person that will look you in the eye and say, Honey, I love you, but you're wrong. Look, you are just dead wrong, and this is why. Tammy is very good at this. Yeah. Tammy's very good at telling me when I'm, when I'm wrong. And I need that, because otherwise I'd... In my own flesh, I just run all over the place. And I, I thank God for that. And if you think about that, there's two things that keep marriage from all being all that they can be. One is fear. Fear of being open with your spouse. Fear of being honest with your spouse. 
fear of, of earning their displeasure or, or just whatever is in your own heart that you're afraid of, you will, won't open up to that person as God intends. And the other marital problems probably start, though, with an issue between one of the two spouses, and what it really shows is where in their relationship with God that they haven't yielded to God. That there's somewhere in their soul, somewhere in their spirit, that they have not yet yielded something to God. It may be pride, it may be control, it may be just a, a variety of different things, but most marriage relationships of 15 years of pastoring, when I've sat down and, and counseled married couples, it always comes down to a place that they have in their life that they refuse to yield to God. And that's what marriage is, as God intended, when we talk about between a man and a woman. Now I want to look at what God sees marriage as in relation to him and the married couple. And that comes to marriage is not a contract. One of the biggest arguments out there is marriage is just simply a civil contract. You get a license from the state and they let you get married. That's not the way it was intended in this country. Marriage contracts didn't come out until the late 1800s, early 1900s. Your marriage was simply just registered. It was not, you did not have to get permission. The reason marriage contracts came out, they started in the southern states post-Civil War to keep black people from marrying white people. That's where marriage contracts came from. That's, they're racist. It started out as a racist ideal to keep, keep the races separate. And that, if... People say, well, we lost the fight with biblical marriage last week. No, we didn't. We lost it in the 1800s. This is just the natural progression of where that came from. Because racist Christians in the South put these laws into effect to keep two people who are of the same race. We all came to the same two people, right? We're all the same race, people. You just have slightly different colors. We're all the same race. Apart. That's what they were doing with marriage licenses. So this is not a civil contract. This is a covenant. And a covenant is very, very different than a civil contract because a civil contract doesn't involve God, but a covenant does. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15, and we're going to look at what a covenant means to God, particularly in the in the realm of a marriage contract. Now in Genesis 15, Abram, before his name is changed to Abraham, Abram is getting old. He does not have a son. God has promised him a son, but it has not come to fruition yet. And he is sitting there meditating, I suppose, in his tent, going, you know, God, I'm getting kind of old here, and if I don't have a son pretty soon, that all my possessions are going to go to Eliezer, my servant. And, I, you know, you've promised me this son. Where is it? Where is it? And all this kind of thing. So God gives him a little bit of an um, object lesson here in what God's promises and what his covenants really mean. And this is taken from a, an idea and a practice in the eastern or Middle Eastern areas during that time in the Bronze Age. And he says here in Genesis 15, verse 9, that God is, God is about to show him the seriousness of covenant. And especially you're going to see it in relation to marriage. Genesis 15, starting in verse 9. So the Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer 
a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged them in halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So God tells Abram, I want you to bring animals normally reserved for sacrifice to me, bring them and cut them in half, and then after that you see a pillar, a smoking fire pot, which is representative of God, walk between them. This is how people made covenants in the Bronze Age. They would take two animals they would, that were normally reserved for sacrifice to God, cut them in half and walk between them. And what they were saying is that may what happened to these animals happen to us if we break this covenant. So that's how serious they took it. This is why Jesus said, because of what happened to these animals and, and the idea of covenant, this is why Jesus said what God has brought together, let no man separate. Because it's the same thing as what happened to these animals. Covenant marriage is not just a civil contract. It is not something that we enter into to ensure a tax deduction or to make sure we have visiting rights to the hospital or a transfer of benefits or pensions at our job. It is something that he is doing supernaturally to bring two people together. It's a supernatural blending of people's souls with God being the force that binds that together. You see, kind of in the picture here, we have one slot going into the other, and God is that glue that is going to hold them together. It is not a two-part contract. It is a three-part contract. That's why we say, if you think about it, most marriage ceremonies, if they're held in church, they begin with, dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of who? God. God. Because God is the one that is doing the work. It is not something that I'm doing as a pastor. It is not something that through my spiritual power or something is going to happen. This is something that God is going to do when he brings these people together. Is he's going to take all these holes over here and fill them with slots from over here and they're going to bind together. And all these holes over here, this person is going to be able to come forth and bring these together. And these two are going to become one flesh with God being surrounding them and being in the middle of them. So when we get divorced, when we, when we just go from one person to another, when we give our bodies from one person to another, or we sleep around or, or whatever, we are destroying that idea of one flesh. And not only are we destroying the idea of one flesh in our own spirits, we're also just through, throughout it all constantly chipping away at our relationship with God until there's nothing left. God is in this. Now, we understand from the Bible that there are biblical reasons for divorce. We understand that. Mainly adultery. And when we talk about adultery, we're not talking about a one-time thing. We're talking about a continuous giving over to sin by one of the spouses. And I think within the script, if you really read the scriptures, you see divorce within the scripture. It is because of the hardness of heart of one of the people and that they don't want to change and the safety of the other spouses involved. I don't think a single case of adultery or even one or two cases of adultery should be immediate grounds for divorce. That is not the kind of adultery that is being 
um, talked about within the Greek language. It's a, a giving oneself over to adultery that, that is talked about. And in relation to gay marriage, I want to make a point that when people go to a church, and I know that there are Christian denominations out there that are blessing this. Well, they've, they've thrown out the Bible and they've thrown out 2,000 years of scriptural thought because they think they're smarter all of a sudden over the last couple years that they've somehow discovered something new in the scriptures. This has been settled for not even 2,000 years, 6,000 years of Christian thought has, has settled this matter. And all of a sudden, in our pride today, we think we know better. And in relation to gay marriage, we have to understand that God cannot bless something that he has not ordained. He cannot bless something that he has not created. Because if he did that, he would be transferring his glory to created things. And he cannot do that and still be God. Marriage is also for life. Yes, men, when you get married, this is a life sentence. <laughs> but seriously, I want you to really understand the idea of one flesh. Just as no living thing can survive being violently torn in two, the one flesh ideal of marriage is to be until the death of one or both of the spouses. And the, uh, the death of a spouse is probably one of the hardest things a person can go through. And we know there's people here that have gone through that. Yet, if you are a God-honoring believer, that same glue, even though one of these two halves are missing, God will be willing to stand in and be that half if you are a God-honoring Christian. Until either you join your spouse in heaven or until he brings somebody else to fulfill that for you. There's another straw man that gets brought up with marriage, and that is saying that other cultures have had marriage for millions of years now. You see it in India, you see it in Africa, you see it in China, you see all the other cultures in this history have had some type of recognition of marriage that has been practiced, and therefore Christianity can't make a claim to it because it's been practiced over the world. Well, you have to go back to what Christians believe, I guess. And that is that Christian theology says, again, we came through from the same two people. We came from Adam and Eve. So this idea is people spread out through the, through the Tower of Babel that this idea originally came from these two people. This was a God-instituted thing. And when these people spread out all over the planet, they brought that idea with them. Even if they named it for another god, or another practice, it originated with them. Because if this came about naturally, if you really think about it, especially if you ever experienced a rough patch in your marriage, the idea of, of spending one per, your life with one person really isn't all that pleasure, pleasant of a thought, if you think about it. I mean, if, if we're evolved beings, that doesn't even make evolutionary sense, monogamy. If, if we're evolved beings, then our natural predisposition should be to sleep with as many people as we can to perpetuate the species. So the idea had to come from outside of us to have this idea in our societies to, to be 
one man, one woman for life. And I understand some people have polygamy and all that. That is not God's design. But the central thing is that God, this has to be something outside ourselves that led to this. Now I want to answer, now I want to just give us a few more tools in closing here about how we can answer our culture now that gay people can be married. And for most of us, unless you're really called to do this, which I would say probably hardly anybody is, stop focusing on the sin. Focus on loving the sinner. Exercise grace as the Spirit leads you. And this is going to be done by focusing on allowing the life of Christ to be manifested within you. And if you do that, you can't ask God, God, make me more loving. But what you can do is say, God, put more of you in me. Because God is very good at being God. He is not very, we are not very good in trying to be like God, but he's very good at being God. So if we just release the, ability, or release the hold that we have on our life and just say, Jesus, take it all, he will live through us and enable us to do this. That doesn't necessarily mean that loving the sinner means patting them on the head and telling them that they're okay. That's not love. That would be like a doctor during your annual physical seeing a gigantic cancerous spot on your back and saying, oh my, that's something that's going to kill them. Wow, I should probably tell them about that. Oh, I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. I don't want to get in an argument. I don't, I, I don't want to be that kind of person. I'm just, I'm just going to, you know... Hope they live till next year, then maybe I'll tell them. That's what that's like. What would we think about a doctor that did that? We would say, I hope his malpractice insurance is paid up. But often that's what we do as Christians. And Christians in this culture have a bad name, and we brought it upon ourselves. We really have. And you want to know why? It's because... We've used worldly tactics instead of spiritual tactics to win this culture. We've seen sin come up, and we've gone and boycotted people. We've seen abortion come up, and we've gone out and picketed in front of abortion clinics. And I think people that, that try to dissuade women from abortion clinics can, is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But when we use that as our primary method of engaging a culture, that's not what God God said, or we'll form a political action committee and say, okay, if we just get this person elected, then, then everything will be okay. But is that, is that what God wants? I don't think God's going to bless that stuff anymore. I don't, I don't think he was blessing a lot of it in the first place, especially the stuff that's done in anger when you're shouting slurs at people. I mean, come on, that is not Christ. We need to understand that we don't wage war as the world does. We have weapons and our warfare that are not carnal, but they're mighty through pulling down of strongholds. Last week during our solemn assembly, I said that judgment begins at the house of God. Is there something that is going on that is anti-God and anti-biblical standards in our nation? It's because of the sin and the complacency in God's people. And that sin and complacency starts with not having a prayer life not having a life that is devoted and wants to seek God. Uh, my former pastor put out, he's part of the national prayer team, and he put out that 
uh, after all the protests that we had over abortion, after all the signs we made, after all the laws we tried to get passed, after all the, everything we tried to do in the world to see abortion defeated, nothing happened. Public opinion kept swaying all the way over here to abortion on demand even right before the baby was born. It just kept moving that way. And then the National Prayer Committee decided to actually follow what the Bible says and start praying. They started seeking the face of God and stopped trying to do things through a political process, stopped trying to do things through yelling at people and doing all this kind of thing. And you know, the latest polls show now that over 60% of America actually disagrees with abortion. That the tide is turning on this one subject because we gave it over to prayer. What does the Bible say? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will turn and I will heal their land. Jennifer and Tammy, if you want to come back up. Finally, I want to answer this question. And it's a question that's kind of being yelled from the other side at us. They're saying our God is homophobic, and I would say no, he's not. One, phobia means fear, and God is not afraid of the homosexual, nor does he hate them. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in people choosing to go to hell. He wants all people to come to him in repentance, so much so that God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And this is how we deal with our culture. The culture that's coming out of the closet, well, we need also to come out of a closet of comfort and go back into the closet of prayer for this nation. That's how we address this. And finally, most importantly, we need to get on our face before God in repentance and prayer. Again, judgment begins at the house of God. And we need to start waging this warfare in a way that can and God's word says will turn the tide of this nation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. And we thank you, Father, for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you did not just give us a bunch of rules to follow, but you gave us the rule maker to come and live inside us. So following the rules isn't any big, any big problem because he is just being himself within us. Thank you for tuning in to the Whitehall Assembly of God podcast. This is Pastor John Oscar, the senior pastor of Whitehall Assembly of God. If these messages have blessed you, I just encourage you to subscribe to these podcasts, and you'll be able to hear every single message that comes out of Whitehall Assembly. If you are interested, go on Facebook and like us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page, Whitehall Assembly in beautiful Whitehall, Wisconsin. We also have a website that you can visit, whitehallassembly.org, or you can come visit us in person. We are located on the corner of Dewey Street and Sheila Street in Whitehall, Wisconsin. We hope to see you there someday. If these messages have blessed you, I'd just like to encourage you to contribute toward us being able to continue to bring them to you. You can see that on our website, top right corner of the page. If you have any questions, you can contact me at my email, pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. If you don't mind, I would just like to take a moment to pray for you before we go today. 
Father God, I just ask, Lord, that every single person who listens to these messages will be brought into a deeper relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let them experience the love and forgiveness that Jesus bought for us on Calvary's cross. I ask, Father, that you just use it to enrich their lives, that you use it to make them good ambassadors of the kingdom of God and bring them into your presence someday. Let them be fruitful, let them multiply, and let them be used mightily for you in these last days. Father, I commit them to your care now. In Jesus' name, amen. God richly bless you.